Banen. Cut to. Exterior. Interior. Restaurant. Bar. Club. Day. Night. Action. What does the entire state of Wisconsin and the Lord of the Rings have in common? Their bars have the same feeling. They have the same vibe. That sense of place to have a beer before you go on an epic journey through hell and back. Who knew? Guys, it blows my mind too. Oh, And thank you for listening to Restaurant Fiction, your new favorite film, writing, and food podcast. Yes, that's right. There, we said it. We are the podcast that reviews every single fictional restaurant, bar, and club in TV and film. I'm your host, Monis Rose. And today's episode, we are going to Middle Earth. But before we do, we made a stop at the Green Dragon Inn the fictional tavern featured in the Lord of the Rings and Hobbit series. We brought along our good friend, writing teacher and mentor, Max Tim. Max is not only an expert with Lord of the Rings lore, he is also a published author of the awesome young adult fantasy novel, The Wishkeeper. He is an executive at the International Screenwriters Association and the president and main script consultant at the story farm, where I initially met him and he coached me into molding one of my features into something I am truly proud to show the world and not just bury it in my drawer with all of the other scripts. Anyway, without any further ado, here is our review of the Green Dragon Inn and our conversation with Max Tim. Go. So guys, Restaurant Fiction, we did a journey. We took a journey to, uh, some might say Kiwi land, but we say Middle Earth. And, you know, before we even ever, though, go on, say, a big journey of momentous occasions, I'm talking like the uh, Homer's, uh, you know, Odyssey or Iliad type of journey with demons and wars Before we all do that, guess what, guys? We need a beer. We need a beer. Not some fancy ale, but just a nice brown beer. That's right. We need need to go to a place that is welcoming. We need to go to a place with no uh, bouncer in any kind. We need to go to a place where we can just, you know, wear what we wear. So if we are wearing some, you know, some T-shirts, just some, you know, we don't, there's nothing snooty about the place where we need a beer is what we're saying. We're not dressing to our nines. We come from a hard day's work. We go to a nice tavern before we go off. Guess what? If we do not want to wear shoes, we are not going to wear shoes. We, If we want to dance on the tables and sing some Irish type of jigs, some Celtic jigs, well, guess what? That's what we're doing, and that's what we look for in a tavern, in a pub, just like the Green Dragon Inn. Yes, 
it has all of that. It is like a hut in a fairy tale, picturesque, green upon green. I mean, it is greener than leprechaun green. Uh, it has the thatch roof. Um, it is, you know, personally, I will say, guys, uh, you know, American um, genetics in general, we, uh, the average, I believe, height for men is anywhere between five to six and a half feet, right? Well, uh, you know, personally, me and all of our crew at Restaurant Fiction, we are about five, nine, six feet. So, you know, in this Middle Earth bar, the only, say, uh, problem we had was we had to bend down. It's uh, for a smaller type of crowd, if you will. But guess what? We, we're okay with... Uh, um, you know, elves and hobbits and humans and all the sorts that just maybe are a little bit smaller than five feet. But other than that, yeah, what we just like is after a hard day's work and before we go about our ways, you know, to try to save the whole uh, Middle Earth, the whole universe, what have you, we need a good beer, and there's no better place to start that journey with a song at the Green Dragon Inn. All right, Max, that is our little short review of the Green Dragon Inn from the Lord of the Rings series, the Lord of the Rings mythology, especially from the start of the first movie, The Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, what is your take on that? What is your opinion? Uh, uh, you have, The floor is yours. I love this. I mean, uh, the Green Dragon... Um, basically think farmland and then those types of people and, and I guess you could say creatures that would go to a farmland area bar and tavern. And I think tavern is an important word because it isn't only a saloon. It's, it's an actual inn where they serve more than just liquids. <laughs> they serve food on top of it. And I think that the, the, the reason I wanted to just dive into the Green Dragon on this podcast with you guys is because it's so welcoming and, and warm and it's more about the folks who are in it as opposed to what you're consuming. It's just like a meeting place for the town. And it's extreme, like you said, extremely comfortable laid back. It's more about the conversations that are had at the tables as opposed to what they're drinking, even though the hobbits are famous for loving everything in terms of what they consume. There's this hometown feel to it. We're inundated with in terms of the restaurant scene, and I've wor I worked for over 15 years in food and beverage, in, in like high end country clubs, yacht clubs, and stuff. And, and there is a snootiness to some of these high end places that, in a lot of ways, is one of the reasons we go because there's a specialness to that that snooty. <laughs> but you you need those local inns and bars and taverns and saloons that you want to hang out with because you can just be yourself. What makes a bar have a Wisconsin vibe. So I'm a writer. I want to set, you know, a scene in Wisconsin. Like, how do I make it feel like home where you are mm -hmm. in the bar? Yeah, and that's there's a direct connection to the Green Dragon because the Green Dragon has very much this country Midwestern type feel, really, because there are farmlands all over the place and there's nothing fancy about it. And that really is key. That would be the first thing about a Wisconsin bar. There's really nothing fancy about it. In, in a very literal sense. So the wood paneling, absolutely, every, almost everywhere. There is a supper club feel. I don't know if anybody knows what a supper club is. I would assume everybody being this type of podcast know what that means. The supper club is very much like your grandma and grandpa's living room. Very old from like the 50s, 60s style 
just but nothing contemporary <laughs> you know you have this 50s contemporary mid-century kind of thing that's the exact opposite of wisconsin bar it's there's a lot of neon beer signs a lot of wood red dark wood maybe leather type of cheap leather chairs peanut shells on the on the floor it's so casual that it's kind of gross <laughs> But you love it because it feels like you're walking into your, you know, dirty friend's living room. Yeah. So can you maybe um, talk more about that? When, say, a writer is putting a bar, a tavern, a restaurant, how to make that bar, tavern, a restaurant, yeah, more than just a place for characters to talk? It gives the story layers. Anytime you can give a little bit of a history or a feeling of history, that the place has been there for a long time. The story just it gathers these different layers that can spark the imagination of the reader. You can do a lot more of that in a novel than you can a screenplay, but there are still obviously ways you can do it in a screenplay, and it's primarily through the visuals, unless a character is going to be talking about the historical significance of the property they're in, which how much screen time can you take up to do that? From a novel perspective, you can go on and on, and you can talk about the history of the place. Like, I, I have a sequel to my young adult fantasy novel, The Wishkeeper, and I haven't released it yet, but I'm working on it, and I created a tavern in there, in that story, where all the fairies gather from all over their own land, <clears throat> and it's called The Worm and Willow. And I've always liked the, the English approach, where they, they have the eagle and the crow. They call these pubs two different or referencing two different animals or two different things. So I just kind of came from that angle, and I thought the worm and willow, and it literally just popped into my head. I liked the, the alliteration of the words, and then I just wrote a little story behind it about how a worm fell in love with the willow, and it was the tavern is actually built out of the willow. And I just have a half of a chapter talking about the story of the, of the tavern. And it's just fun because you get a sense of, okay, this has been here a long time, there are a lot of characters that have come and gone, and obviously now we're centering it around our main characters who then spend time at this little tavern. So it just it gives a sense of real world in, a, in an obviously fictionalized one. Now, you know, in speaking, bringing it back to uh, Tolkien and Lord of the Rings, you know, what about drinking and hobbits and elves and Middle-earth mesh so well? Why not just... Uh, a nice picnic with everyone. Why a tavern with some beer and, you know, some hard, you know, some hard ales? From a story perspective and standpoint, it, it makes it real. I think it was kind of like that nail that he finally pounded in, meaning he was going to be telling this huge story about so many different races in a mythological world with magic and all these different things. But then Hobbits kind of brought it together and made it relatable. So it would only make sense then to come up with the background as to where these hobbits live and what do they do, what do they eat, where would they eat these things and drink these things. It made it extremely relatable. And, and obviously there are humans in the story of Lord of the Rings and Middle Earth in general, but those humans are very warlike. You know, Tolkien wrote this thing during World War One, before World War Two, and it, it is a little bit of an analogy to, to what the world was like when he was writing this. And, and the hobbits were his way of, just getting back to the basics, the people that he grew up with and loved, and, and it's very much based on his portion of England where he grew up, the farmers and, and the, the yeomen, the, the very simple people in a very positive way that he grew up with. And so that's how he made Lord of the Rings relatable. We were able to root for these very simple, small people and see ourselves in them. Excellent. And how do you make your own 
your own tavern? Like, so how did you make a uh, worm and willow fresh in a way? Like, how do you bring then what you just said to your own work? So it was primarily within the, the little city area, if you will, of the world that the fairies live in. And uh, I had this idea that when the fairies created their own world, and I won't go into too much backstory, they first thought of the trees and each of these one. Well, I, I'm not going to go into the history of it all. <laughs> but when they created the world, they thought of the trees. There is this pocket of trees in the middle of their land. It's rather large, you know, over 100 acres, we'll say. No two trees are alike. So it's all of the types of trees in the, in the human world that you can imagine. And so that makes up the forest. And I thought, okay, well, then it needs a willow tree. It's one of my favorites. What can you do with the willow? And if you make it an ancient willow, interesting, it would be really huge. And then it kind of acts as a drape and, you know, over the town center, if you will. And then there are little roads that go around it. So my imagination just started to build up. And I thought, well, if it's like a village center, there are going to be all these different businesses. But then connecting it with the lore of the fairies that I've created, all the different fairy types and families and clans, if you will, have a different assignment that they're supposed to keep, meaning it's not, some fairies don't just keep wishes. Some of them watch over the flowers. Some of them watch over the lakes. And some of them are farmers. You know, And so I created this whole layered backstory of fairy families. And then I started to name some of the businesses that some of these fairy families own. Like there's this um, florals and vines shop. And of course, uh, the last name of the fairy family is escaping me. But they sell wine, but also flowers because they are, you know, cultivators of the earth. And then they had this new vintage they were presenting when in this moment that I introduced readers to the village center. And it just started to come alive. I'm like, wow, this is like a fun little village center I'd love to be in. And then at the center of it is this giant willow. And then I came up with a name for the restaurant, Tavern, if you will. That's where then we go into. I gave a little bit of a description of the willow. There's a sign above it of a, of a worm hugging the tree and all the fairies tap it for good luck. And it was just fun. Like, it really doesn't have that much bearing on the actual storyline that you're supposed to be following. It just gave a layer to where this character is, as opposed to the, she just walks into a tree and then there's a tavern inside. You know, why not paint it? Gotcha. Now, that's not just amazing for your own story, but that's just an amazing exercise just to grow your imagination. You you literally plant a seed of a world in a way that you've created, and then you think to yourself, how can I expand this world? How can I expand this world? And at the same time, you're like you're also asking yourself, how can this expansion of the world actually help my story? Am I mm -hmm. right? Yeah, right. Exactly. You want to... Everything that goes into a story, whether it's a novel or a screenplay or a short story or anything, all the pieces have to fit together in a proper way. Or otherwise, why is it in there, especially in a screenplay? No scene is a throwaway scene. Everything needs to be chosen with purpose. This is why this scene and moment is happening and why it's happening here. If they are going to be at a location, why just half-ass the location? You might as well, especially in a novel anyway, Give a little bit of a backstory, and it also then depends on the genre. If you're writing a large fantasy or science fiction project, the readers are going to have that level of expectation. Build the world for me so I can understand where I'm living. There are some mystery dramas or romantic novels or straightforward stories that don't necessarily need to paint that level of a picture. So it, it kind of depends on the, not only the medium but your audience. Ah, so you can have a little more fun when you're uh, diving into the fantasy genre. Am I right? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I want to say fun necessarily, but there's a level, you know, yes, it's, it is fun, and you can have more fun 
there's just as much fun that you can have in a romance novel that, you know, why are they going to the beach and what's essential about that beach and why do they kiss there? You know, that you want to be asking all these questions as opposed to just a random location because it just then feels surface level for the reader. Now, even to get to this point in your writing career, Max, of the, the depth of your creative development, like how has your, uh, I guess my question is, how has your story telling style change throughout the years? It's become a lot more sarcastic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, tell me more. Well, when I was in college, everything was so serious, and I, I'm still a little bit of a hopeless romantic, but my edges have been rounded. There was this seriousness about everything when you're younger and you're an artist, and, and everything is like, I want to teach a lesson because I was learning things about myself. And So you want to have other people experience that same level of emotion that you're having. And of course, when you're in your late teens and 20s, every emotion is important. So that's how I felt my writing was working and at least delivering in terms of emotion at that younger age. And now I've, you know, everybody grows up, you have failures and, and successes from all walks of life and, and areas of life, not just in the art world. So your, your mind about things change, you know, you have different perspective that then kind of melds with my previous perspectives. So I try to harken back to that sometimes, meaning when I'm writing now, I do love that old part of myself of just the epic hopeless romantic and how emotional everything is but now I, I have this sense of it's serious but it, it's not that serious you can still laugh about some of these things and and so I do take a little bit more of a comedic approach in most regards while still staying serious and talking to the themes that I'm trying to present excellent excellent what advice would you give a smart driven emerging writer never stop educating yourself don't ever take your craft for granted from that level of humility, meaning you're never going to completely figure it out. You're just never going to become a master, and that's okay. Like, you don't have to be a master, for one, because there really is no such thing as a master in the art world. You can say certain artists have mastered the craft, but that's completely relative to taste, and that's the issue. I don't want to say problem. That's the issue with art. You know, somebody could look at a Roy Lichtenstein and go, oh, my God, I love that piece. Other people could look at Monet and go, oh, my God, that's amazing. Those two people would think the opposite about you know, either sides of the art world, meaning I hate Lichtenstein, I love Monet. It's hard to say that those people have mastered that. It's hard to say that those people have mastered that. Yes, they're extremely good at it. And then you look at, at the screenwriting or writing world. Can you say Stephen King has mastered the art of writing? Sure, probably. But I don't know if he could write Star Wars, or some form of science fiction epic, he probably would do pretty well at it. It's very relative. So going back to the initial piece of advice is never stop educating yourself. You have to constantly be reading. You have to constantly be studying what other people are doing and apply it to your own craft and just write as much as you possibly can while also educating yourself. A lot of writers think they can just constantly write, get a whole bunch of things done without ever actually teaching themselves what is working and how to improve that. They're just writing and writing and writing, which of course is great. You should be doing that. But it's kind of like a, uh, I, and I never get this quote right, but Michael Jordan was famous for saying is that uh, you could shoot 10,000 free throws, but if you shoot it incorrectly, all you do is learn how to shoot the free throw wrong. You could argue that by saying, well, if you're making the shot, then it's fine. But it's just, it's commentary on, you could do 10,000 hours of work, but if you're not also incrementally trying to improve, what are you really doing? I don't want to say wasting your time because you're not. 
But I think you get what I'm trying to say. You have to constantly be educating yourself, taking courses, working with consultants, getting into writing groups, having people read your stuff and, and find out what's wrong. So that sense of humility is extremely important. Gotcha. And what I'm learning is when anyone ever gives advice just to say, let me think about it. So, so there you, you're, you're stewing over it, regardless if you're going to take it or not, that's up to you, but you're thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You just take it in. Does that work for me? I mean, Steven Spielberg could give me advice and after you know a few minutes, I'd be like, I don't think I agree with that. Just because of Steven Spielberg, it's not like I'm just going to go, yep, you're right. I mean, most of the time I might. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. I mean, I don't have to take everybody's advice. What works for you is what works for you. And yet you want to have an open mind. So there's a little bit of a 50-50. Excellent. Excellent. Where can all of our audience uh, members find you, Max? Uh, these are This is now the time for some self-plugs, some shout-outs. Social media, if you just search for Max Tim, you'll probably find me. There aren't too many of me, but then uh, I'm on Instagram and, and uh, uh, Twitter. iMaxTim is my Twitter handle, and Instagram is uh, Instamax9. But as far as you know, working with me, you can go to thestoryfarm.org. I'm going to be reducing my roster size here pretty soon. Best bet would be to go to the International Screenwriters Association's website. I'm the director of education with them. And uh, I created a bunch of coursework for them. I host podcasts every now and then. I host webinars. So you can go to the events tab uh, at the ISA page. It's networkisa.org. And we're extremely active for writers and creatives of, of all levels. So go there and, and just uh, educate yourself. I think that's uh, the best way for me to leave all of you. Max, I appreciate you. Thank you so much for coming on. Awesome insight. For everyone listening, I highly, highly recommend buying Max's book, The Wish Keeper. I found it on Amazon. Find it wherever you buy your books and read it. Don't get up. Just read it through and through, page one until the end. Maybe just go to the bathroom and eat a sandwich or two, but seriously, just read it. Do yourself a favor. Also, For those who want to work with Max, go to his website, thestoryfarm.org. That is thestoryfarm.org and see what he's all about. Also highly recommend that. He, in addition to all of that, he runs amazing classes through the International Screenwriting Association. That website, www.com networkisa.org, N-E-T-W-O-R-K-I-S-A dot O-R-G. For us at Restaurant Fiction, tell your closest friend and confidant to listen to this episode. You obviously made it to the end, so let them do it too. That's all we ask. Until next time, I'm Monis Rose, and keep it real, keep it fresh, and always keep it on the flip side. Exterior. Interior. Restaurant. Bar. Club. Day. Night. 